When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I am a coach, I'm a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and the new book, Brave New Girl, which is all about how to grow your confidence in easy steps. So today I'm talking to Karen Johnston. She is a social worker, a sober coach. She's a yoga teacher for addiction and mental health, And she also runs residential retreats for women in recovery from trauma. Now, part of what she does is she works with women sex workers and helps them to increase their self-esteem, overcome from the trauma that they've experienced, helping their body image and their inner connection. And she has so much to share about how we can do these things as well. So this is a brilliant discussion. Karen and I talk about her work helping sex workers to overcome trauma. And she also explains about what trauma is and how we can start to heal from it. She shares about how we can get out of our heads. You know what I mean? When we're in our heads, we're overthinking, we're worrying, we can't switch off and actually getting into our bodies, actually inhabiting our bodies and being in the present moment. She also shares why she is an unlikely yoga teacher and how all of us can get the most of yoga and how we don't need to be bendy 22-year-olds wearing designer workout gear in order to get the benefits. And this is a really reassuring point that she makes. And we discuss loads more. So you have one more week left to sign up for the Confidence Challenge. It starts next week on the 1st of July, 2019. Head over to karmayou.com forward slash confidence. Pop your email address in there. I'm going to send you all the details where I'm going to be helping all of you to have a better relationship with yourself, start being kinder to yourself, start enjoying being you more and really thinking about what are the things that you'd love to do and what are some steps that you can start to take to get them. So it's all about simple strategies to grow your confidence. It's totally free. Sign up at karmayou.com forward slash confidence. There's also going to be an amazing community aspect where we're going to be supporting each other and sharing and really connecting as we go on this journey together. So I really hope you're going to join me. So let's get into the interview with Karen. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a real pleasure to be here, Chloe. I'm really glad. Thank you for the opportunity to come speak. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about what you do and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. So I'm a sober coach 
a yoga teacher. I'm an outreach worker to women in the sex industry and I run retreats for women in recovery from addiction and mental health, but in no particular order. (laughs) Those are the things that I do. And um, people always ask me how I got into working with women in the sex industry. And it's, it's not something that I ever thought I would do, but I had quite a difficult teenage period. And during that period, I suffered with my mental health and I suffered with anxiety and addiction. And I was exposed at that time to lots of things that were quite dark and quite difficult. And so I was around, you know, criminality. I was around sexual exploitation. I was observing lots of things that probably someone of my age shouldn't have observed um, or been part of. And the end result of that was that I ended up in uh, residential rehab when I was 22. And what I knew about women that were involved in especially street-based sex work at that time was that 95% of them had really um, entrenched substance misuse problems. Wow. Yeah. So mm. it, it came hand in hand, really, that, you know, that transactional sex for drugs and obtaining money to purchase drugs, all of those things were interlinked for a lot of women that I knew and a lot of women that I loved, you know, mm. people that I knew well. So, yeah, I got into recovery myself when I was 21. I had my 22nd birthday in a treatment center. And I, at that point in my life, I hadn't finished my education. You know, that whole teenage year, teenage time, early 20s had been really, really tricky. I'd moved city, but I decided to go back into education. So I had to go through the whole process of getting back into, you know, the equivalent of A-levels. And I went and did a degree in social policy. And in that degree, I studied how, you know, how governments tackle social issues and how governments tackle things like substance misuse, domestic violence, homelessness, poverty. And my, my research project was about the needs of women who were in on street sex work at the time. So what were their needs? What were their issues? What were they struggling with? And what came out of that piece of research was that I began volunteering with an agency in Bristol at the time that was doing outreach work. So I was doing the outreach work and I was doing my research project alongside it. And, um, you know, having really building relationships with the women, it was a, you know, quite an in-depth piece of research and it was based on building relationships and biographical research, so finding out about these women's lives, finding out about their stories, how had they ended up in the position that they were in. And there were some common threads that ran through their stories. And I think it's probably hugely misunderstood. And what people don't realize about women that end up in that situation is that some kind of trauma has already happened before they've made that decision to enter into sex work. So we had a statistic for the women we work with in Bristol. And again, it was 95% of those women had experienced sexual trauma in before the age of 12, which is quite shocking, Yeah, you know, and then you, then you look at the women's lives and you look at the fact that they are trying to manage that with you know, they're self-medicating essentially, that level of trauma and that level of abuse 
and it kind of makes sense Mm. you know it kind of makes sense why they're there and why they're prepared to take the risk that they do take so yeah wow that's amazing amazing that you're and so what is the work that you do at the moment? Can you talk a lot more about that? Yeah, so the work, I'm in a quite an unusual position in that I still work with women that are in active addiction and are still street sex working. So I'm a social worker. After my degree, I went on and did a social work master's. And again, I was working in a sex work project. So I, I've always done this work. So I go out every Monday night into the red light district, which is where I live. There's a red light district still in every city in the UK um, and you know there are sex work projects in most of the big cities and these are usually charities that go out they go out sometimes five nights a week and meet the women out while they're sex working so we we just approach the, the women all know us you know so we have relationship with the women and we mainly just try to make sure that they're aware of any perpetrators of violence so there's a system of reporting amongst the women where the women can tell us and tell other women about any men that poses a significant risk to them right um because there's massively underreported but there's huge amounts of Mm. sexual and other violence that goes on and is perpetrated towards the women all the time so we we're mainly there to warn the women and to give them harm minimization advice and we give them food, you know, the women are very malnourished, sometimes haven't eaten all day. We take out hot chocolate, we put cream on, you know, we make cake. We try and just address those really basic needs for, you know, food, water and shelter. You know, if the women are homeless, we would get them referred into emergency housing and safety. Mm. So it's those real base level needs the women aren't they're not getting those needs met at all wow yeah and it's one of of those things that you know I wouldn't even know where the red light district was in a city and it's one of those things that's just going on that we don't necessarily see day by day but there is so much suffering and you know it's so yeah I can't believe that statistic around the level of trauma and can you tell people who maybe don't know, I think trauma is a word that is a bit scary for some people, yeah. not totally sure what it means. Can you explain what, it, what that is? Well, I think that there's trauma can be a response to an event that's happened that is traumatic. So that can be a one-off event or a series of events. The trauma that I tend to work with is known as complex trauma, which is kind of multi-layered trauma. So there's been an, a, an original incident And then there's been another incident and another incident layered on top. And women, I can only talk about women because I only work with women, but women who have experienced that multi-layered trauma that's gone on over a long period of time begin to disassociate and disconnect from themselves and then can be diagnosed with things like personality disorders. So a lot of people with trauma will get a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder because their personality becomes quite fragmented and they can become really disconnected from from who they are because it's not been safe to be who they are. So yeah, there's this kind of split that happens in people's personalities. So people end up diagnosed through the mental health system with disordered personality, but it's actually a response to something that happened usually in childhood wow, wow yeah 
Yeah. And then so I think you said something there about disconnecting from their bodies. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think in order for the women that I work with to even go through what they have to go through in, I mean, I wouldn't even call it work. You know, people call it sex work, but I haven't met a woman out on the streets that's actually wanted to be out there and anybody who is enjoying what they're doing in order to cope with that women disassociate and almost have these out-of-body experiences where it's happening to them but they're not they're able to separate somehow in their mind and Mm. just cut off from you know from the neck down so that their heart and their soul is protected from the horror really of what they're going through and what their bodies are going through Mm. I mean you just you wouldn't be able to cope with that day in day out without disassociating and and I guess you know class a drug use is a way of managing that as well because if you're taking high doses of opiate-based medication that completely suppresses the nervous system it suppresses everything you don't have to feel you don't experience what's going on in the full sense of you know, in the, you don't have the full range of experience with it. So those right. two things go hand in hand, I think. There's mm-hmm. that fragmentation, you know, there's that disconnect from the core of who you are and then the drugs come in to kind of just quiet that down, all of that mm-hmm. distress, really. Yeah. Wow. Is there a link between addiction and mental health issues, do you think? Yeah, I think that a lot of people who start self-medicating maybe when they're quite young feel quite a lot of anxiety but are unable to identify that it's anxiety and they're unable to name it. I mean I couldn't name that I was anxious as a child but I felt definitely felt anxious. So I think in some ways I actually think it's quite a sensible thing to do and I had a therapist once who said to me actually it was quite sensible that you began self-medicating at that age because I think if I hadn't started self-medicating at that age my mental health might have escalated to the point where I was you know borderline suicidal at the age of you know 18 19 and I think that taking substances and drinking alcohol saves some people from that but then the byproduct of that is that it exacerbates the problem So we know that alcohol is a depressant. And so the next day after drinking or the next day after drug use is horrendous for people. You know, they wake up and they, you know, have the anxiety and the the fear and that kind of self-loathing and all that, those feelings are going on. And then the only way to kind of keep that quiet is to continue again. So I think that's how dependency starts to happen is that there's that uncomfortable feeling that people just can't manage and can't sit with and don't articulate, don't know where to go with it. And it's easier just to have another drink or to have another drug. And that's how it continues. And if you do that over a long enough period of time, you you know, with certain substances, you're going to have a physical dependency and, you know, an obsession and a compulsion to do the same thing again, because it relieves that initial kind of high stress feeling that you know that we all we all experience but some people experience that really acutely and are very sensitive and I found that a lot of people in 
addiction are super sensitive people, you know, really creative people and really sensitive people. They feel things acutely and they feel things for other people acutely as well. And it's a lot to manage, so, you know, anything that takes the edge off. And you see it with highly functioning people as well, Chloe. Do you know what I mean? It's not just the people that I work with in my social work job. It's people that I coach as well who are highly functioning on the surface but are still unable to get through the day without self-medicating. That's really interesting that you say that it can be something that actually saves people in a sense. Mm. It's a coping strategy that's protecting them somehow and yet it's not going to work for forever and there's going to be a point when you need to, well, hope not need to, but it's a good idea to hopefully not be in the situation that you're in. So if you're a child, you know, experiencing abuse, not being in that so that you can heal. And it's so interesting thinking about the, the kind of substances because I definitely used alcohol to help myself you know, not having suffered extreme childhood trauma, but to just get over general low self-esteem, feel more confident, feel more relaxed, be able to speak to people, which I don't think I could have done if I wasn't drinking. But thankfully, well, yeah, I suppose thankfully now I've reached a point where I don't need to do that. And I've actually been sober for a year on Monday. Oh, wow. I'm excited to celebrate that. (laughs) Well done. Yeah, Yeah, so... So, um, and I, I speak to so many people who are cutting out alcohol or cutting down because of the, the effect on their anxiety that it has. Yeah. It can be really massive. Can we talk about trauma and self-esteem and how trauma can impact that? And Yeah. I think that trauma, if, if it's come from childhood, there would have been a primary caregiver usually who possibly hadn't been protective enough. And we, we're esteemed by our primary caregivers. And if that doesn't happen, then we can, you know, end up with very low self-esteem. If, you know, and that can, that can manifest in lots of different ways. So, you know, being esteemed for your achievements rather than who you are, that can lead to you only feeling like if, you know, you're worthwhile if you're doing lots of things or you're getting good grades or, you know, you're doing, doing whatever. So it can manifest in lots of different ways, low self-esteem, and it presents in lots of different ways. But I think the the core belief that most of the women that I work with have is that they're, they're not enough. That's the core belief. I'm not enough. I'm not lovable. Yeah, those two things. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're deep-rooted beliefs that that people are very attached to and believe to be true. And when you're operating from those two starting points, it's very difficult to create the life that you want. So, yeah, I mean, it depends what type of traumas happen, but definitely if it's been physical or sexual abuse or emotional neglect, indifference in childhood, you know, indifference can be one of the most devastating things to children. Children can actually deal better with rage than they can indifference. So indifference can really damage a child's sense of self. But I think it's, you know, it's a common thread. I think even people that have had relatively good childhoods can still feel like they weren't quite enough. They weren't quite getting it right. Or, you know, I definitely felt that I, there was more I should be doing, that I wasn't quite getting it right, that I wasn't quite pretty enough, slim enough, you know, like all these not quite enoughs. And I think, I think the recovery process definitely for me has been looking at those beliefs that have been 
going and running through my life for years and reprogramming my mind, but not just my mind, my body and my heart in a way Mm. (laughs) to try and heal from those beliefs which are untrue. They're not true. It's not true that we're not enough. It's not Mm. true that we're unlovable. But we've been told that or we've internalized that at some point. Yeah, I find with with my clients, so there's two groups of people. So some people that are like, uh, that say, yeah, I had a really terrible childhood. I experienced sort of, you know, this, this and this. And those that say, actually, yeah, I did have a really good childhood. And maybe they, this group, don't even recognize that having a parent that is very loving, but maybe very critical or was always pushing them to do more or had very high academic expectations, that that can be damaging as well, even though the parent is very loving and has really good intentions. So it doesn't have to necessarily have been a big trauma. It could be one of these little sort of traumas that adds up to still not feeling good enough or not feeling like, yeah, what you do is enough, essentially. Yeah. And I think if we're not connected to our inherent value, you know, the value that we had as babies, because babies don't come into the world hating on themselves they just lie there with their little legs in the air happy as anything don't they and it's environmental stuff that that starts to layer on that self-doubt and that criticism of who we are and I think we have to get back to that inherent value that just because I opened my eyes this morning I'm enough before I did anything before I checked my emails before I checked my Instagram and saw how many people were following or not following or do you know what I mean before I checked my text messages to see if my boyfriend had messaged me before all of that just when I open my eyes I'm enough Mm. without any of that stuff but we don't know that we're not taught that are we we don't you know no one tells us that you're inherently valuable no (laughs) no one tells you anything (laughs) you learn about algebra instead (laughs) and (laughs) times tables um yeah and I suppose things like social media it kind of is feeding into that sense that we need to do something in order to be enough or we need validation from other people we need a certain amount of likes in order to be enough and if we're not getting that on a certain day then we can feel as if you know that validation has been taken away so that's probably not adding really making that I think those insecurities worse in a sense how does someone I mean for the people that you work with how do you start to know that you're enough or what is the process that you start to take people on to feel better about themselves or to start to overcome their trauma? So, I I mean, I do a series of exercises with people, but the first thing we look at is I get people to write 10 examples of situations that trigger their sense of feeling less than. And not just the situation, but what they're thinking and what they're feeling in that situation. And I say, think of this 10 situations. 10 sounds like quite a lot, but it's actually not when you sit down and write Mm. it. You know, and it can be walking into a room where you don't know anybody and you immediately make a judgment about who is of more value than you in that situation. And I get people to write about what they're thinking and what they're feeling. It's really important that that they write that. The other side of the coin, which is interesting, which people don't talk about very much, is I get people to write, how do you perceive yourself to be of more value than others? Because that kind of arrogance and grandiosity can be the same side of a different coin. Have I said that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I totally get that. That We we can, we either, you know, I can say personally that I've either judged, I've gone into a situation and I've either decided that person has got more value than me or 
I have more, you know, that I've put myself in an elevated position to be able to manage that social reaction. And I've made an immediate judgment about whether, you know, I'm going to come off okay in that situation or not. It's real survival stuff that goes on underneath all of this. So yeah, people have to also do 10 examples of when I viewed myself as of more value than other people. And again, what am I thinking and feeling? And how do I harm others when I'm operating from that point? So I ask people to write, how do you act, not act in your own best interest when you're feeling less than? And how do you harm others when you're feeling more than? Because I really think, you know, a lot of people are in one position or the other, but a lot of people go between the two. I love this idea. I first heard of this from, I think, Eckhart Tolle. And I think he said, within every shy person exists or every inferior person exists someone that wishes to be superior and how when we're kind of insecure we'll swing between feeling less than people or feeling better than people and neither is very nice to be in. No it's not helpful is it but it's about belonging it's kind of we want to suss out where we belong in this social situation so we're you know always scanning for for the differences rather than the similarities between us and I think that's what, you know, I guess I when I run retreats, what we do, and when I bring women together in that way, I say at the beginning, we look for the similarities in our stories and not the differences, because that just breaks that down. Because then you start identifying with people's stories rather than thinking, well, actually, I'm not like that, or it wasn't that bad for me. You know, you start talking about the feelings, then you, you begin to identify with another human being don't you woman to woman you start to see that everybody's the same it doesn't matter what your social background is it doesn't matter what your starting point is you know we all suffer from the same thing I think that's such an important point and something that I definitely notice if I do a workshop I get people to share what they're struggling with and I get them to put their hands up if they relate to what another person says and usually 90% of people relate to everything that you know people are saying And there really is something about just knowing that we're not alone, knowing that often these things are part of the human condition. It doesn't mean that you're broken or there's something really wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you're going crazy. It's just such a normal thing and something that so many of us struggle with. Yeah. And it's very, I suppose, comforting to know we're in it together, I guess. Yeah. And it's very brave, isn't it, to out that and to articulate that and to say that. And, you know, the thing that I notice about women that I work with that get into recovery from addiction and mental health, they're so emotionally articulate and they can just talk about this stuff, you know, in a way that it's just really, they're just really emotionally intelligent. They get it and Mm. they are able to, you know, they can have these brave conversations and they can say it. And that's what, you know, I think that's what happens when you bring people together, you know, in groups. It's so important. If this, you know, I don't, think that recovery from anything can be done in isolation I think it's so important to find your people the people that you identify with and the people that you resonate with and that actually human connection is a massive part of the healing process absolutely and sadly so many people are lonely and so I think mental health issues can make you feel really isolated and I often say that it's almost as if it's a symptom of anxiety to tell yourself I'm the only one in the history of mankind that has ever (laughs) felt this way I know that's how I used to feel when I was feeling when I was having panic attacks I was like no one else has ever had a panic attack before I didn't know what it was or yeah never heard anyone else say they'd had it certainly wasn't talked about at school 
And I just thought, this is my personal shameful issue. Yeah. And then obviously learn years later that how common it is and how many people do experience it. And yeah, I wish I had had access to more kind of communities and more of that sort of thing at the time, definitely. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to recover from trauma, from mental health issues, from addiction? Or is it more about managing it? Or is it a process, do you think? I think it's a process and I think it can be very difficult for the first few years. And there's this saying that we have in recovery, which is don't leave until the, before the miracle happens. And I think that there comes a point where if you just stay with it and you just turn up and you abstain from the, you know, whatever was causing you a problem, that healing begins. And I think it happens because of community. You know, I think community is really important. I, you know, doing it in isolation is really difficult. So the women that I know that have done really well have got into recovery communities and created new support systems for themselves and have had really good support from other people, whether that's like a mentor who's further along in the recovery journey or um, a therapist or a coach or, you know, just another woman that's been there that can sit with her through those first few years because I do think it takes mm. years mm. and just reflect back to that person their inherent beauty and their inherent value I guess you know that's what I've had from mentorship and and um, I've had these amazing women that have really reflected that back to me and that's enabled me to to believe that you know, maybe I'm not all that bad. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe there's some stuff that I can do. Maybe I can step into this version of myself that I always felt wasn't applicable to me. But I think it's a process, definitely. And it takes so much longer than people think. I think you can have big realizations and the penny can drop. And I can remember having really operating from this place of low self-esteem in my early twenties. And and a particularly good mentor that I had said to me, because I couldn't do the affirmation thing, Chloe, I couldn't look in the mirror and say, you're amazing, because I couldn't go from you're awful to you're amazing. So I had to just say to myself at that point in my life, all I could say to myself was you're okay, you're doing your best. And that was like an affirmation that stayed with me for years. And it was still actually today one of the most reassuring things that I can say to myself is, Karen, it's okay. You're okay. You're doing your best. You know, you're showing up. You're brave. You're giving it a go. Like, that's so reassuring. That immediately, my nervous system has got that one. You know, it's it, that the neurological pathway in my brain has got that. It's laid down. So it kind of, can, I can connect to that really quickly. And it soothes me. And it just makes me feel okay again. I think it's just really important to find those sort of phrases and those words that can bring you back to to who you really are. I think that's so true. And I think I saw this on your Instagram, something about going from a, a point of self-hate to self-neutrality yeah. to self-love. And yeah. I think for a lot of people, I know it was for me, this idea of self-love just seemed like a completely far away, impossible thing that I didn't relate to yeah and so just starting off with self-compassion or just saying to yourself you're okay you're doing your best is like the first step and it's a lot more realistic I think than to suddenly just yeah. have self-love when you're in a really rubbish place yeah so I love that advice yeah it's so important can we talk a bit about yoga 
and your yeah. experience in, in helping people with that uh, medium. Yeah, of course. So I think that I healed my kind of emotional self quite early on. I learned to regulate my emotions and I learned to identify them and I learned that there were healthier ways to deal with my feelings than suppressing them. So for example, I learned that when I felt lonely, the healthy thing to do is to reach out to another human being and you get a gift at the end of that, which is, you know, that you get to sit with someone else or you get to share yourself with someone else and the gift is connection. And I think, yeah, I learned that early on. I learned that if I was feeling sad, again, the thing to do is to acknowledge that and to feel it and to verbalize it and tell another human being. If you feel frightened, you know, there's a whole, that, through the whole range of feelings. I kind of learned early on that if I allowed myself to feel them and I expressed them in a healthy way, and I was honest about them, I'd get this gift at the end, which was that I felt much better about myself and, and I felt less alone. So I learned that quite early on. But the the physical aspect of my recovery um, has taken a while. And it is a bit of a standing joke that I'm a yoga teacher, Chloe, because all my friends that know me, I'm probably the least likely yoga teacher on really? the planet. I, I mean, I am so, my yoga teacher will be just putting her head in her hands if she listens to this because I or, or when we got went to this yoga teacher training which was in Portugal I was like I'm so unflexible I'm so not yogi you know I just I'm not cut out for this and she was like it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard like everybody can do yoga yoga is about the connection that you have to yourself and your breath and your body and 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 that's it. And it's so my yoga teacher training was about me learning what my body felt like, probably for the first time, you know, like really feeling into bits of my body and appreciating them and really starting to, yeah, like fully appreciate my body. Like our bodies are incredible when you really think about it, you know, that our lungs are just doing their thing and that our heart is just beating. And we did lots of internal sort of body scans and thinking about once you start thinking about how your body works it kind of blows your mind yeah. do you know what I mean yeah. it's, it's incredible and we take it for granted you know and we've I've neglected my body I've abused it I've put all sorts of things in it that shouldn't have been there so for me it's been this kind of like oh I'm in you know I'm not just this head and this heart I'm inside this 45 year old physical body and you know it's a bit stiff and it's holding some anxiety like I really hold fear in my hips so my hips were like really really tight and you know not very mobile at all and what I learned through yoga was that that I come to the mat every day with a different kind of emotional world and a different physical world and it's about self-acceptance it's about not forcing this body to be any different than it is right now so I'm a bit of an unlikely yoga teacher I think and yeah. um, my friend actually kind of sponsored me to go and do this course and it was one of those things that I got sponsored to do and it was yoga for addiction and mental health so it's slightly it's a called a restorative practice it's much more gentle it's a lot of work is on the floor and we do a lot of yoga nidra which is a really deep it's almost like a yoga sleep so a lot of the work that I do or the practice that we do with women on retreat is all on the floor with lots of pillows, lots of blankets, lavender eye bags. You know, it's very sense. It's a sensory experience and it's all designed just to regulate the nervous system and bring the nervous system back into a place of stillness or a place of calm. That sounds like my kind of yoga, actually, <laughs> like just 
<laughs> relaxing in certain positions <laughs> with like bolsters because yoga can be really off-putting when you have I don't know nothing against 22 year old yoga teachers but you know young yoga teachers who yeah are all quite young often and very bendy and kind of doing arm balances on one arm whilst you know touching their toes to their head and that can be off-putting oh, maybe to certain people and I love the way you describe it as actually it's about being in your body yeah. And how many of us are so often just in our heads? And I actually think that overthinking is a way to not have to feel often. Yeah. It's a distraction so that we don't have to feel our emotions. And yet the emotions are still going to be there. They're not going to go anywhere unless we properly process them and feel them. So, yeah, doing something like yoga to come back into the body and knowing that it's not a competition. You don't have to be, quote unquote, good at it. You don't yeah. have to be flexible. <laughs> There's no such thing as good at yoga. Yeah. It's just being with your own body. And I think, you know, a lot of people do find mainstream yoga studios inaccessible because they'll look at the teacher and think, I could never do that. And the way that we were encouraged to teach was to make everybody in that room feel as comfortable as possible and so a lot of the work's done with our eyes closed you know please like don't look at the person next to you this is about you this is about your body this is about what you need today and really getting people you know not to think about what anyone else in the room is doing and just get back into themselves but there's a lot of comparison that can mm, come on. I know, horrible, kind of being downward dog and just, just looking around, like seeing, oh, that person's much more flexible than me. Um, one yoga teacher said to me once, yoga is a breathing exercise. Yeah. And that took a lot of the pressure off me and just made it more enjoyable and just made me, helps you to be in the moment, I think, and connected with your body again, to think of it that way. Totally. And it's a preparation for meditation as well. So that if we can shift some of the energy that's in our bodies, that gets stored in our bodies by doing a series of movements or, you know, by being in a very relaxing position that encourages the tissues and the, and the muscles to start to let go, then we can get into stillness quicker. It's impossible to tell someone with a very busy mind to just sit and meditate for 20 minutes. It's just it's so hard yes. to do that. But, you, you know, the yoga that I teach is a way of preparing us to be able to deal with that stillness. So I'm a lot of my class are in child's pose for 10 minutes, just there, just stay there and just see if you can let something go. You know, and staying on the floor for that long, you have to give in eventually. Mm. You can't hold on. You have to just let go of something. And I just say all through class, just let something go. Whatever's not serving you, just let it go. Just let it go. And, and there can be quite a physical release from that and, and an emotional release and tears, you know. I think if you're really going there in yoga, you'll probably cry once or twice yeah. in your class yeah. because you get this actual emotional release of, oh, gosh, I've, I can feel that I'm carrying this stuff in my body and I need to just let it go. That's, yeah, I, I'm thinking about this idea of surrender. Yeah. And surrender, I think we often think of kind of like giving up when we think of surrender, like a white flag or something. But actually, in this context, I think means letting go. And you might be in child's pose or doing a forward bend or something. And it is that sense of kind of letting, letting go of the resistance, letting, allowing the tension in your muscles as you release into it. Do you have a better explanation for surrender? For surrender, I think it's just coming out of your mind, isn't it? And, mm. it, and it's stop trying, it, you know, it's letting go of the need to be in charge and letting go of the need to control and letting go of the need to know what's next. It's just being fully present in the mm. moment with no expectation on yourself or anything else. 
really hard. I'm not yeah. saying that like it's easy. <laughs> so easy. It's so easy. Just, just surrender. Just get in child's pose. You'll be fine. <laughs> but, you know, what an amazing thing if we can carry that, you know, develop that sense of being able to let go in a yoga class and then be able to take that into your daily life would yeah. be amazing Yeah, to be able to do that. So it sounds like something like a kind of restorative yoga or yin yoga might be good for people wanting to find a class in their area or something. Yeah. And restorative yoga tends to be later on in the evening. People tend to do restorative classes, you know, eight to nine o'clock. It's a bit of a, you know, more more candlelit practice. Mm. When we do it on retreat, it's always in the evening. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, candlelit. Yeah, just comfy. Nice, comfy yoga, not hard yoga. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really yeah good one for, for people with anxiety that it's more about having your eyes closed and yeah you don't have to look at anybody. And... You, no one's doing anything you know tricky. Mm. It's very on the floor and and it's very grounding being on the floor, being with yourself. Mm. Okay, sounds yeah. good. Sounds good. <laughs> Is there any other I don't know practical things that you suggest? people can do themselves just to help themselves with any of the things that we've been discussing yeah I mean I I really try to live in this 24 hours and I think that that's been the most helpful thing for me in my recovery is to just deal with this day so I just have to deal with from when I wake up in the morning to when I go to bed at night and if I can keep my thoughts within that 24-hour period I can manage and I don't get so overwhelmed. It's when I start thinking too far ahead or I start thinking about what's happened that I can become overwhelmed. And I also really bookend my day with self-care and practices. So in the morning when I get up, I have a daily reading, a daily meditation book that I read and then I move my body a little bit. Sometimes that's yoga, sometimes that's that I need to dance, sometimes I just need to shift something and then I maybe sit for five minutes sometimes I sit for 15 minutes and I breathe sometimes I have a guided meditation that's my little morning practice and I set an intention for the day I set an intention every day just to let the day unfold and to try and get out of my own way and to try not to be in my head because when I'm not in my head everything works out really really well when I'm up there it can be a bit of a disaster, Chloe, yeah. our heads aren't honest. Our heads tell us all sorts of nonsense. So if I can get into my heart, which sounds, you know, a bit abstract, but actually it's just, it's just not overthinking. Mm. It's just, I don't write lists. I just give the day over to whatever I feel is supporting me, which can be something different. You know, I have a faith that I'm being looked after. It's not religious particularly. It's just I feel like I'm looked after because Mm. I can see that throughout my life that I have been and I can see it definitely through people that I've worked with who shouldn't be here and are still here. You know, they've been protected and they've been looked after. So I trust that the day's going to go well. I set an intention that it's going to go in my favour. So I get that in the morning. That's like my morning practice. And the same at night, really, before I go to sleep, I have a I have a little WhatsApp group and we do this daily thing, which is we text one thing that we forgive ourselves for. So I forgive myself for today, one thing. I am proud of myself today because five things. And I am grateful for five things. And then the last little thing is the best thing about today was, and then I write, what was the best thing about today? And then I look back over my day. And what that does is it gets 
my mind to only look for the positives. So it filters out all the negatives. So if I do that before I go to bed, it kind of, again, it's just resetting my mind into a kind of, yeah, more positive state. And I always find something that was really good that day because I'm looking for it. Do you know what I mean? So and we, I have a massive group. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So how many of you, are you all every day? Yeah, WhatsApping I've got, you these di- things? Yeah, I've got <gasps> several different wow. groups because I have women that come on retreat. They have one group. I have some of my one-to-one clients check in every night wow. with things. And that's like, you know, how to help them stay accountable is I have that facility mm. available so that people can check in at the end. And I love reading people's lists because they're lovely. Yeah. Do you know, you know, they're positive. I, I never think, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night or whatever, but I never think, oh, oh no, I've got, it's always just mm. really lovely to mm. read how other people are, are changing and growing by doing these practices. And then I go to sleep without, without yeah. too much on my mind, which is lovely. And if you'd have told me that, you know, even 10 years ago, that I would go, be able to go to sleep without worrying about anything, I'd have said you were completely mad and that that was mm. never, ever going to happen for me. And if you'd have told me that I could not think the majority of the time, I'd have also said, that is crazy. How do you not think? But. I'm in a position now where, mm. you know, it feels much more intuitive that I'm just living from a place of what's the next right thing and I feel it rather than think it. That's so inspiring. Well, I hope it I makes sense. Yeah. I hope it's not too out there. No, it does. It makes total sense to me. And that, that sense of just trusting, yeah. trusting in your own ability to deal with whatever might come up in the future, being in the moment. And it is such a better place to be than... We, we often think that overthinking keeps us safe. But actually, if we're all in our heads, we're, we're not in the moment and we're not at our full creativity. We're not our most intelligent. We're not our most intuitive. And we're actually less safe when we're overthinking constantly. Yeah, it's scary to be mm. in your head and trying to manage everything yourself. It's yeah. actually impossible. We can't manage everything ourselves. Mm. You can't manage, you know, everything that goes on all the external, you can't manage all of that, can you? We're one person, you know, there's so much to worry about if that's what, you know, your focus is. It's much easier just to say, actually, I'm just not dealing with any Mm. of that. I'm just going to get up and get myself right and Mm. go from there. But it's taken a long time. I'm going to say that like it's been easy. It's been, it's taken a long time and a lot of practice. And I think the important thing to say is, it's not going to be a one-off event. You know, this stuff takes daily commitment and daily, someone called it not discipline, blissipline the other day. <laughs> <laughs> like that it's just something that's quite joyful and quite blissful. Yeah. If you can find the thing, it doesn't have to be yoga. It doesn't have to be, you just find that thing that makes you feel better about yourself and do that every day. You know, do it every day. Do it in the morning and do something before you go to sleep. You've got that 24 hours locked down pretty much. Yeah. Blissipline. Blissipline. Oh my gosh. So good. <laughs> so good. Amazing. And I love the idea of bookending the day. I do transcendental meditation in the morning and then kind of about five or six o'clock when I finish work for the day. And it just, yeah, clears the mind of the stresses of the day and, yeah. and sets me up for the day in the morning. So definitely a fan of bookending the day. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much for everything that you shared. How can people find out more about you and what you do and 
Okay, so I'm on Instagram and I'm at Karen Marie Johnston Coach, which is long, <laughs> but that's where I am. Yeah. And my website is the same. So it's www.karenmariejohnston.com. Great, great. And are you seeing people one-on-one? Yeah, so I see people for one-to-one coaching. So it's called sober coaching, but that's an American thing. It's basically recovery coaching. So that's either women that are seeking recovery, but quite a lot of my clients are people that are in long-term recovery and are still struggling with their self-esteem. So it can, you know, I work with a range of women while, you know, just see if people are a good fit for working with me and we go from there. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm doing one-to-one as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much Pleasure. for talking to me. It's been lovely, Chloe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. You can come and let me know over on Instagram. I'm at Chloe Brotheridge. And if you don't follow me on Instagram already, I'd love to see you over there. I post videos, tips, helpful quotes, and other things that I think you will love on there every single day. I'm always on Instagram answering DMs as well. So come and find me at Chloe Brotheridge and let me know what you thought of this episode. Don't forget, please do subscribe, leave a rating and leave me a review if you've enjoyed this and let some friends know about this episode or this podcast in general, if you think that they might benefit from it. So I hope you have a great week. I'm sending you loads of love and hopefully you'll tune in again soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 